From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. Cade Masty hosting with two of my longtime Wharton Moneyball colleagues, good friends and faculty members here at the Wharton School, Eric Bradlow and Adi Weiner. Good afternoon, gentlemen. It's Tuesday afternoon as we are recording. How are you guys doing? Very well. Doing well. Yeah. Good to see you. Good to see you. We've got a lot to talk about. I want to start with uh, what's caught your eye in the world of COVID, and uh, we will see how much of that we have to talk about before we jump into sports, but I'm always curious in the world, in the world of, of the pandemic, what is what you guys are paying attention to. So if you don't mind, I'll just jump in with a quick um, re- summary of a conversation I had with uh, a contractor um, who I had asked how come he isn't vaccinated, which I know because he's still wearing mask, um, and and what I could do to help him convince him that, that he should get vaccinated. And, and it, he didn't really have too much of a strong reason. He was willing to be convinced. But during the process of my, my explaining this, I, I wondered the question, how much, at what point does it not matter if a lot of people are not vaccinated? So say uh, it'll help you if, if you ever get exposed. Certainly, that's an easy one. It's, it's a very effective vaccine. It has essentially very, very mild side effects that, are, that pass quickly and no long-term side effects. But then I started asking myself this question, does it really matter? At what point do we need, do we need people to get vaccinated? vaccinated? And, and, and at what point can we just sort of throw up our hands and go, it's enough? But do you mean I didn't have from an a society's <laughs> point of view, or do you mean to a given individual? I mean, eighty yes. percent of from the a society. I mean, yeah, but I mean, from a society it, perspective, because it's very easy. You know, if someone personally doesn't want to take the vaccine, they're worried. Whatever it is, they just don't feel comfortable. You know, it's sometimes an easier argument to say, "Well, you're helping other people by taking a vaccine." But no, at no, some no, point, no, that no, argument no. just loses steam. <laughs> no, but I'm saying I'm sure there are a number of people that believe that I don't know how large of the people that haven't gotten vaccinated it is that say, I don't need to get vaccinated because other people will. And then the question becomes, you could be, you know, the people say, well, 80 percent you need for herd immunity. OK, but I could be the first person after that 80 percent that gets COVID and gets really ill. And so from an individual perspective, People still need to get vaccinated. And I think you would agree, even if 90% of the population was vaccinated, it doesn't mean the day after that, that all of a sudden COVID cases are going to zero or deaths are going to zero. That's just not true. Well, actually, that's something I, I guess I guess I'm going to push back on. I think at some point, some percentage short of 100, COVID deaths and cases will go to zero. And that's the number that I don't know how far we are away from. And... And that Over I think what period of time? This is one yeah. of the things I always talk about. In yeah. you know, I always talk about in marketing. You know, people always say, "Don't go after that consumer group of people because it's a declining segment." And I go, "Okay, <laughs> and how quickly is it declining?" Yeah, right. So, I mean, uh, how fast is it going to go to zero? Even if ninety percent of the people got vaccinated, right? So, and we don't have too much experience. There's very few few countries we could look to, other diseases we could look to. I can tell you just as a counter example, measles is uh, a very, very contagious disease. And if, if once you get pockets of people not vaccinating, it can come back and come back hard. 
Um, and, and that's a disease where the vaccine is extremely effective, but it's also a disease where the, the, the um, transmissibility is, is many, many times more than COVID. So it's hard to know whether that's an example. Um, well, let, our, let's imagine the following, since, you know, in homage to our new colleague for a year now, Duncan Watts, who studies network theory, a colleague of Cade's in OID, let's imagine you had a, uh, a, a two-group network where you had 90% people in one group, 10% in the other, and then connected by just a single wire, okay? And for somehow, some way, the 90% people infected the 10% people. Those 10% people are never going to get vaccinated, and they only just interact with each other, okay? That 10% of the population is going to get COVID. They're possibly going to get very severe, depending on their age and other characteristics, and therefore, it won't go away until that 10% of the population has either all gotten COVID or, you know, in some sense, and there'll be some death rate. It'll just be lower than before because it's not 100%. It's still 10%. But that model presupposes that there's this pocket of 10% of Correct. people that, that, that exactly. are all interconnected. And that's not how it actually works right. unless it is, unless there are pockets like that. So if there are pockets of, of people, there are. groups... Where a where it's not just where almost everyone in this community say is not vaccinated. That's a terrifying group of people, and they are going to be uh, potentially um, overwhelmed by by COVID. Well, I think you know this, Adi. There are states right now. I think last time I saw it was ten. It might be up to eleven or twelve now. Where over seventy percent are vaccinated. Yeah, there are states now where they're still in the forties. Yes, 30s. but every state is 30s. is experiencing a rapid decline in COVID cases and mortality, regardless whether it's forty or seventy. Uh, I saw why. That's yeah. because, well, forget, let's, I don't know, but you can speak more about the cases. It's because 86% of people over the age of 65 right. are the most vulnerable population. Yeah. Those are the people that are vaccinated at that percentage, right. regardless but, of the state. I mean, it's still higher yeah. in some states than others, but it's so, high in every state. I, it's, it's, it's high. I actually saw an, in, an internet meme going around that the five, the five states with the lowest vaccination rates have increasing COVID, COVID rates. That is just not true. Every state... The only state that in the last two weeks has not seen its COVID numbers, raw numbers go down was Wyoming, and they have like 62 cases and they have 63. <laughs> so it's not exactly the least of all populated states. Hey, real quickly, what, question, what role does seasonality play, seasonality and weather, in, in, these, in these declines? That's, you know, that's a fabulous question that we have heard arguments on both sides of this this equation the seasonality essentially we know and this the few things that we really do know is transmissibility happens indoors and in crowded indoor settings whether that's mostly families and that the more you're spending time outside the less transmittable diseases and that's i think we've that's borne out in the data to some degree the, it, it's maybe not be that surprising but mostly it's the southeast that hasn't vaccinated in, in the percentages of the rest of the country they're well, they warmer is, yeah exactly so we know on the one hand they're um politically right of center, which is where more of the anti-vax sentiment lies, but That's they're right. also the warmest part mm -hmm. of the country. And these things are probably both factors. In what's I don't on. see any reason why there won't still be, and, 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 we, and I don't, I'm not going to put a precise definition on this, why there still won't be communities even six months from now that will have significant COVID rates and possibly significant mortality. I said communities. Yes, communities in the United States. I, I'm going to bet against that. Um, 
and, and not that I know, just that I'm taking the over-under on that and the under. Um, I think that uh, it is not that transmissible a disease. And I believe, just to point out, that almost every community will have its seniors vaccinated it's at a certainly high degree um if you once you take away seniors and i'm unfortunately putting ourselves in that group <laughs> it's shocking but you know the over 50 group where where there is somewhat significant mortality certainly over 60 and 70 is more so um i think everywhere is gonna is going to be vaccinated well inoculated against that one of the things that i've noticing is the um incredible reluctance in many communities to kind of drop the the protections, the social distancing, the masking for children, despite the fact that the adults are not doing it at all. It's this incredible. Have you noticed this uh, in here in Lower Marion? Um, lower Mar- adults aren't mandated to wear ma- masks really anymore, and people aren't. But children all wear it. That's and I, I find this uh, interesting. What's the science behind that? Do we know that this is a good idea? Are they just being extra protective of kids just because you are extra protective of kids? I mean, maybe it's mis- misinformed. Are you talking about but... outs- outdoors, Adi, or inside? Oh, I'm not inside, but I only see it outside. Of course, I see it outside everywhere. Um, I was at. I attended a wedding, a wonderful outdoor wedding, on Sunday with about 75 people, and all the young, everyone under the age of 12 was wearing. There weren't many. Well, if you actually look masks. at the CDC guidelines right now, at least the ones from a couple of weeks ago, it was more about if you are vaccinated. You don't, and of course, depending on how young you're talking about, most people, certainly nobody under the age of 12 has been vaccinated, and probably only about, I, I think it's only about half the people between 12 and 15. So you could imagine a young teenager at a wedding who's not vaccinated, who doesn't want to get COVID, who wears a mask. Well, my my, uh, my essential response to that is, obviously, it's a personal decision, but uh, maybe a teenager, because it does seem to harm teenagers a little bit, even though it's very, I mean, the, the, more, the incidence rate in Lower Marion is, is like two in 10,000 a day. It's as low as it ever has been. So if you put that into the equation and the fact that almost everybody, all the adults are vaccinated, certainly in, at this party, um, that was the case. But let's talk this, about our common topic on this show, which is uncertainty. And so I think we agree. I think we agree. The data suggests this, that the short term effects for people age 12, 13, 14, are, they've always been minor, right? But what about the long-term effects? Suppose you get COVID as a 13-year-old and you wake up one day and you're 33 and all of a sudden you have lung damage uh, because <laughs> COVID stays in your system for 20 years. I'm just saying, there is, an, as a parent of a you know, 12 to 15-year-old, I can tell you the concern isn't short-term, the concern is long-term. Yeah, and we just don't I know guess. yet. Do we know? Yeah, no, who knows? I mean, but I would I would look to a biologist or a physician to tell me whether this is something that is a general concern. I'm generally not concerned with things for which there isn't a mechanism um, to explain. Now, COVID has thrown a lot of curveballs at us. And so you can just blur that uncertainty just about everywhere and kind of kind of come to terms with it. I, I do recognize that. I also I mean, I actually generally feel that the kids have just gotten so used to it. I was about to ask, Adi, because I, mean, yeah. I, I hear you, but the cost might be pretty low. And so if even if it's mysteriously uh, transmitted or there's no obvious mechanism, if there's a real bad potential downside and the cost of prevention is relatively low, I could imagine a parent wanting to. Well, I'll give you an example. I have a, a friend of mine, one of my close friends, I was the best man at my wedding. He lives in Manhattan. He, uh, he's been vaccinated, which is, I'm glad. Um, he plans on wearing a mask on the subway every day now for the rest of his career. Now, it's not necessarily because of COVID. 
Uh, he doesn't want to get the flu. He doesn't want to get a cough. He doesn't want to get a yeah. fever. He's used to wearing a mask. Um, it's going to prevent other things he could get that maybe sure. the mRNA vaccine will not prevent against. And it probably will improve his overall health. And he's like, yeah, yeah there's no social stigma against and he's used to it. And yeah. I don't mean, by the way, Adi, I don't mean an N95 mask. I'm just saying yeah, right. if, if he can wear a, a loose fitting mask and it prevents him in the subway from getting sick one or two times a year, he'll take it. He yeah, won't be alone that. in that, right? We should see a lot of people do those kinds of things. I and, think that's a, a good yeah. idea. I would, I, would, I would sign off of that. I'm not sure I would do it. Um, but look how available it is, right? So you can pick up in the, in the supermarket yeah. a package of, uh, of 30, 40, 50 masks for you know, $2, a dollar but and a half. I, it's also just our awareness. I mean, because of what's happened over the last 15 months, we're just more aware of when we're in those spaces and the exposure and the vulnerability from these environments that we used to kind of take for granted. I mean, people didn't love the subway, but it didn't feel quite as vulnerable as it does, as it has over the last 50 months. And consider other possibilities. I was at a gathering last weekend where I, it was in West Texas, vaccinated or not vaccinated, people are not wearing masks out there. And it was the first big gathering I've been to as a fundraiser out there. And I shook more hands in that evening than I probably have the previous year combined. And I was just aware of it. And so I, I don't know. It's, our behavior is going to change some just because our, our awareness is so different than it was before the Senate. You know, I'd be happy if we did more fist bumping and uh, fewer handshakes, because mm-hmm. I think yep. that at least for the, the short term, people are now starting to hold out their hands and I'm now accepting them. But I do like the, the fist bump or um, <laughs> just I think it's a reasonable precaution, at least for a short term. Again, yeah. when we talk about low cost, right? Um, right. That certainly is low cost. Um there's there's much to talk about. There is some good news about COVID that came out um, biologically, medicinally, and an article was was uh, released that suggests that there's actually quite a bit of long term immunity that comes from yeah, I, the I, um, I, having had the virus or having had the vaccine. Yeah. So yeah, what I read, but I, I read the article. What I saw in the article, Adi, was that um, it had something to do with maybe I've got this wrong, but in their bone marrow, that um, some sort of like memory exists in there. And that when it needs mm-hmm. to be activated again, they believe it'll be activated again. As a matter of fact, that's what I, I one of the things I put on our our prep sheet for today was they think for people that have had COVID, the vaccine could be enough to make it that they don't really need to be uh, get a booster for possibly years. They're still unclear even for myself or you who didn't have COVID, who's gotten two doses, like maybe it's a year, maybe it's a year and a half. They don't know. But for sure, um, they believe uh people that had COVID and who've gotten at least one shot may not need protection for years, may not need additional protection for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People have been speculating about this and there's been a, a lot of concern about it actually. And so it's nice to get this suggestion that it's going to be more robust. We have evidence now that it might have a real robustness to it. Gentlemen, why don't we wrap Q1 there, do a short-ish one, see if we can get some of the technical issues ironed out while we jump away for break, and we'll talk about sports when we come back. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now. Eric Bradlow is joining me. Audie Weiner is also bouncing around. He'll be in here shortly, I believe. This is Cade Massey. You guys can join the conversation. Hit us up on Twitter. It's probably the best way. At W Moneyball is our handle. At W Moneyball. Send questions, ideas, suggestions, whatever you got. You can also drop us an email 
It's our mailbag. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. That is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We respond to all of them. We pick them up and bring them on the air as much as we can. Eric, what's on your mind, man? I, you, you, I know you got a lot, a lot of your favorite sports are bouncing around right now. We're between golf tournaments, but we're in the middle of the French Open. And I'm sure you're thinking about all things tennis. Well, the French Open has started. I've really enjoyed watching some of the early round action so far. Um, but before we get to the actual what's happened in the French Open, I, I just don't get one thing that happened at the French Open. So let me ask you, uh, Kate, which of the two players do you think, and I won't use their names for a minute, do you think would be a higher seed at the French Open? Okay. One player is the 13-time champion and the defending champion, I think four straight years now. The other player is, up until this French Open, had never won a match at the French Open. So which of those two players should be a higher seed? Now you say, well, what does it matter? Two, three, four. Well, here's why it matters. And this is why we may actually this time finally see a breakthrough. Now, Nadal's going to win anyway, but here's why we have a higher chance. Daniel Medvedev, 0-4 going into this year's French Open. He had never even won a match at the French Open. Was number two. He's the number two seed. Somehow, some way, by the way. And by the way, he's never won a major. And somehow, some way, because of all these tournaments he plays, he's the number two seed. Nadal is the three seed. Now, you might say, why does that matter? Well, here's the thing. The one and the two seeds are in the opposite sides of the draw. So the one is Djokovic. So Djokovic and Medvedev are at the opposite sides of the draw. Turns out Nadal is on Djokovic's side of the draw. Yeah. And Federer, who's the eighth seed, is also. So Federer, you know, normally you'd have heard me say for years on Moneyball, the reason nobody else can win a major is you got to beat at least two, maybe three of the big three. Well, mm -hmm. the other entire half of the draw doesn't have to beat any of them until the finals. And mm -hmm. now the four seed, who's I consider the second best player on clay right now, Dominic Team, lost in the first round. So oh <laughs> the whole other side of the draw is wide open at this point, and somebody is going to play Nadal in the finals. Now, okay. and, and you know what? Nadal may have gotten beaten up by Federer and Djokovic by the time he gets there. Okay, Eric, so this is intriguing, but let me can you set aside your incredulity and explain why it might happen? So Medvedev, I mean, to the outsider, it must be that people see him as ascendant and the gap between him and Nadal must be big enough to overcome any surface privileges. Unless you're telling me it's something about points that are accrued from tournaments he's played, which is a whacked way to see. It seed. is. It's points it accrued from the tournaments what are they he's doing? played. They can't seed tournaments that way. What are they doing seeding tournaments based on points? That's, that's what they do. The, the whole, remember, I've told you guys again, here's how tennis works. Grand <laughs> slams, they don't call it this. Grand Slams, you might as well call the ATP 2000. Then there's the eight or nine Masters events. Those are called Masters 1000s. Then there's the ATP 500. And here's the thing. Nadal won the French. Medvedev plays a lot of 501,000s and clean those up. Nadal decides not to play them. Medvedev cranks a lot of points. I don't even know. Has Medvedev, I mean, I think maybe he's made one semifinal in a major. I mean, he's not even won a major. 
And so, and also, there. I mean, the French Open could choose to seed Nadal second or even first. Forget second; they could choose to seed him first if they wanted to. There's no rule that says they must follow well, the ATP rankings. Yeah, that's what I don't understand. Is so you've got the rankings. I understand the rankings that are based on these tournaments, but the seeds. Yeah, I, mean, I would like to know on what basis tournaments deviate from the rankings. I would like to think that a big part of it would be expected performance which is a different thing. Yeah, my only comment is in this year's French Open, given Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer are all on the same side of the draw, it has a big, huge impact. Because now I'm thinking one player just has to play the match of his life, and it could happen. It mm-hmm. could happen. Just play the match of once. You don't need to play great except for once in the finals, and that's it. So, Eric, what about on the ladies' side? So the, the, the drama, of course, is all around the withdrawal of Osaka around yeah. these press conferences. It feels like a, a real travesty, uh, and I assume it's going to lead to some changes. But um, were they as ham-handed, the tournament as ham-handed as it, as it feels over here? Or do you think yeah. Osaka's being soft? Like, what, 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 what is your perspective? Look, I, I, you understand, as the son of a psychiatrist, um, mental health is a serious issue. And she self-proclaimed, I'm not diagnosing her. I'm not, it's none of my business. She has self-proclaimed that she has depression issues and mental health issues. She feels really nervous speaking in front of other people. She does not want to do press interviews. It gives her extraordinarily high anxiety. And you know what? Um, I understand that that's what pays the bills. But at some point in time, if someone says they're having mental health issues, and then the, the ham-handed part was when all four majors ganged together and said, oh, if you don't do this, we're going to find you and eventually default you. And she just said, forget it. Then I can't play. Mm-hmm. And she, she dropped out after the first round. Look, it has a big impact. She was the number two seed. So now that entire side of the draw has lost her. Um, Simona Halep, the number three player in the world, didn't play because of injury. So now all of a sudden, the women's side has always been wide open, but now it's potentially even more wide open. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, but Eric, real quickly, you said it pays the bills. It, it doesn't really pay the bills. I mean, the, the, the play, the performance, the on-court stuff pays the bills. But so what, what is the alternative here? So if she doesn't want to do press after every match, she might be, she, I think she said she'd be willing to do press after the tournament. What what accommodation might a might a Grand Slam give to players? And if they they can't really just carve out an exception for Osaka and not grant that opportunity to others, right? There yeah, has to be some problem. fairness about it. Yeah, that's the problem. The problem is if everyone chooses not to give interviews, then you know it's both selling not just commercial time but downtime. And you know the tennis aficionados like myself like to see the interviews with the players either after the match. I learned something from the match, their strategy from the match. So it would decrease the value of the match, uh, of the, of the watching experience, not the mm-hmm. match. It would devalue the watching experience for me. And so I, I, I can see that a little bit. Um, and also, you know, I'm also one of these people, I don't mix process and outcome, which means if your policy going into the tournament is you will do interviews, you can't change it mid tournament. Like in other words, I, I would, I'm all supporting her and the choices she made, but you shouldn't really change a policy. You shouldn't ask to change a policy mid tournament. Mm-hmm. That should have been decided after the tournament. And I hope before the U S before Wimbledon starts in a couple of weeks, they have some way to do it. Cause otherwise I don't think she's going to play Wimbledon. My gosh. Okay. And it's, I mean, this, she's not only one of the, well, she's one of the best players on the women's side. She's one of the biggest 
best known players on the women's side. It's really a challenge. For the I sport. think she has a, a wonderful deal. personality. I love seeing her talk on mm-hmm. court and part of it might be her awkwardness. It's like, you know, someone that's so accomplished, but it, that doesn't mean you want to talk in front of millions of people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, obviously she's also a very inspirational story being of both Japanese descent, but of, you know, uh, minority descent. Um, it's, um, she's, you know, an inspiration for one nation and an inspiration for people that are minorities. And she, and mm-hmm. she is the most successful woman's player of the last five years. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's what's going on with the French open right now. Let's try to rope Adi in here. Adi, what on the baseball front have you been paying attention to? And have you, has your, has your view gone beyond the Yankees? Well, you know, I certainly have been admiring from afar Tatis, uh, you know, ripping the the ball, off, the cover off the ball. He gets this monstrosity of a construct of a contract. To uh, how old is is he? Uh, incredibly young age, is long, long contract, and he's having an incredible year so far. They're projecting him fifty fifty, which is just absurd. Fifty home runs, fifty stolen bases. I don't think that's ever happened in baseball. Um, so, well, so hold on. So this is notable because if I remember correctly, everybody was just aghast whenever he signed this contract a couple months ago. That's right. 22 years old. You know, they had a lot of control over his um, over his contract at very low salary. And it's very tempting to see. All right. Here's a young kid comes up. Great. Has a great season. Go two or three years. Go into arbitration. Um, and if if he turns into a, a Gary Sanchez, it, it's genius. Right. Um and to not give him a contract, it could, but it could be, say, so he could be a superstar, in which case you lose the opportunity to lock them up for, a, for essentially a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really the gamble. It's a real, it's a little classic decisions theory. Does, does he, where does he traject? I mean, uh, what happens when you're 21 years old, 20, 21 years old, and you, you've got control for five years? If you, if you mature into a superstar, you might lose the player. But on the other hand, you can give them this monstrous contract and you just can be an albatross for for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. So it, it was it was controversial because no one had ever done that with. with the well, this year. It, well, if I remember correctly, you, you also have precisely because he was so young, they didn't have as much basis for their predictions of him. Right. So that's right. They're just more uncertain, given how little time they'd seen him play. It's really well, let me let me extend Adi's discussion on Tatis. Um, he's already missed. I think it was 18, 19 games. And he is projected right now. I'm looking at baseballreference.com. Um, he is projected right now uh, for uh, 55 home run. No, sorry, not 55, 49 home runs and 121 RBIs. Here's the issue. What makes you believe he's not going to get injured again? And so I'm not saying he is or isn't, but I have no confidence that he's going to play the remaining, whatever it is, 110 games that the Padres have. Maybe he Mm -hmm. plays 80 or 90 of them. Maybe the average player would play 80 or 90 of them. So I don't have – he's not getting 50 and 50. I'll I'll take the under on that. I definitely would take the under on that. But what was his injury? What was the – was it one of these oblique strains that every Yankee seems to get every five minutes? Uh, I I, I forget if it was an oblique strain or a shoulder or something like that. That, but he had some injury that was enough for him to miss, you know, eighteen or nineteen games. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, but this is the real. I mean, the real concern with baseball. I mean, so many teams have lost huge numbers of players to the IL. The Mets being obviously being probably the number one, and they keep winning somehow. Um, and the Yankees have lost a bunch of players. Of course, I'm looking at the Yankees who are now in a spiral once again. Um, and and but overall with <laughs> baseball, it just seems like that nobody's hitting. Um, you know, we, we, uh, I don't know which one of you guys threw out that Len Randall um, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Clear. That was great fun. And and it was it was a great fun. It was it was the, just a context. A pitcher threw at him, and instead of charging the mound, the next at bat he bunted down the line just so that the pitcher would cover and come to the baseline, and he can take him out. And all I could think of is, damn, that guy could bunt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he just threw it down. Well, I'll give uh, you um just to build on what Audi said. I'll give you a reason yeah. why uh, the Mets keep winning. So yeah, here you I go. saw. So listen, I know you know this, Audi, but. We have, I mean, at the moment, it's only June 1. We have the greatest season of baseball going on essentially right now by Jacob deGrom. I understand he's missed a few starts, but his ERA is .71, which is the lowest through May since 1964. And so, so Eric, hold on. You, you, that's a little, it's a little funny to go with the calendar when a guy's missing starts, right? So how, how does the number of innings pitched compare to some of these older records, for example, do we know? Gotta be a lot lower. It would be a lot lower. Right. right <laughs> it right. would be, it would be a lot lower, but I mean, he has, I mean, if you told me, could he possibly break Bob Gibson's record of in 68? It's possible. I mean, what was Gibson's record? 1.12, I believe. Yeah, something and, in that neighborhood. And Jacob Degrom is at point seven one right now. Okay, but that, now I'm really interested in this innings pitch idea because, you, especially you guys being Bayesians, you know, to, let's just let's speculate on the innings pitched for uh, for Gibson. I would guess Gibson was probably around 240, 240 okay. to two fifty. And in, if you had if you had to project Degrom's innings pitch for the for the season, what would you project it at? About one seventy. Okay, so now here's my question for you. Yep, 170, 170 innings pitched by DeGrom versus, you said 240, speculating about, about um, Gibson. The number just came in from Matty. It's 304. 304 for Gibson, okay. And let's, let's say 170. Let's just say, or maybe we can make it easier. Let's give him 200 to make the math easier. Let's give mm-hmm. 200 to DeGrom. You said the record for Gibson was 1.1? 1. 1. 1. 1. 1.12, right? yep. 1.12. What would be the the information equivalent ERA for Degrom for two thirds of the innings? You understand my question, you guys? Because you're going to. Are you saying how? What would his ERA need to be for the remaining two thirds to get no, to one point? I'm saying, 1. what would you think if he does? If he throws one point one one over two hundred innings, it's less impressive than Gibson doing it for three hundred. Right. I mean, what you're doing, what you're, what's in your mind here is the Bayesian calculation. Yeah, shrinkage. Right. So the maximum likelihood estimator, we don't want to get into details of a parameter estimation for our, for our listeners. Um, but if you were, the classic idea is if you've never seen any baseball in your entire life and all you have are these, these observations from this one player, the, what you project going forward is what you saw in the past. That's that, that, and that's called the maximum likelihood estimator. Um, what happened in the past is the best estimate of what will happen in the future. If you've seen baseball, and we all have, and we know that 1.12 is a record, when someone's below that, you expect the the rest of the season to be higher. You shrink up, in this case, you move yourself towards the mean. So yes, I'd be very, I I would still consider uh, Gibson's 304 uh, at 1.12 better than DeGrom's 170 at 1.1. On the other hand, uh, 0.9 or even 0.8 at 170. Yeah, right. So he needs to come in. I he I think he needs to come in below one to I have any that. argument to be in the Gibson territory. Well, he's going to throw two thirds. It's still the lowest as, ERA in history. In. You just want to say it's not as impressive necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, look, I, I I think Adi knows this stat as well as I do. Adi, for how many innings did Mariano Rivera throw in the postseason, and his ERA is below one? 
Oh God, how many innings? That I don't know offhand. I know it's it's almost a season's worth for sure. It's almost a season's worth of innings, and in his ERA I think is point seven. Point seven, <laughs> and it's about seventy or so innings. Okay. And these are, of course, at the best teams in the world. Um, yeah. Oh, it's right. probably even more than that. This I'd love to see that. I mean, the Yankees were in the World Series in the playoffs for so many many seasons, and he pitched more than one inning at a time. Um, I would guess it's probably probably one hundred and fifty innings. Okay. Good fun. Good fun. All right. Listen, another big event from this past weekend was the Indy race. Eric, you talk about a lot of different traditions in your family, and this is a big tradition in American sports. Do y'all have a Memorial Day Indy 500 watching tradition? I used tradition? to, as a kid, my dad really loved racing. Uh, as a kid, I remember we went to the Trenton 300 as a little kid. Um, I also, uh, oh my, my older brother loved A.J. Foyt. There was the old battle in the old days between yeah. A.J. Foyt and the Unser brothers, Al and yeah, Bobby yeah, yeah. Unser. And, uh-huh. you know, who would end up with the most Indy 500s? A.J. Foyt ended up with four. Bob, uh, Al Unser Sr. ended up with four. Bobby Unser, three. Uh, our winner this week, Helio yeah. Castronavis, ended up, got his fourth. And his fourth. almost like a Tiger Woods-like moment. First first at age 46, more Jack Nicholas-like. Yes, right. But also, he won his last one in 2009. So 12 years in between right. winning his third and fourth, which remind me, again, Tiger going 11 years without winning a major, which is the analogy I was making. But, yeah, I mean, I watched – I watched – let me be specific – I watched Indy 500 style auto racing. I didn't wasn't big into NASCAR, and I was not as big. Although Mario Andretti was big in those days, so I watched a little bit of Formula One. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I missed the race. I'll be honest, I missed the race this weekend. Uh, I've watched more of it in recent years because I've married into a family who who has a bit of a tradition of watching it. I know my father in law was watching it, and, and then my wife comes in and she listened to it in the car. She drove across state listening to it on Sirius XM, and she talked about what an exciting race it was. So I tracked down the highlights and watched what happened. And it does, I mean, those guys were neck and neck and they were passing each other over the last 40, 30 or 40 laps. Lots of passing back and forth. Castro Nevis pulled it out. And I was also excited to see, I, I just looked this up. I knew a few of them were. The other people with four, Al for Sr., Rick Mears, and A.J. Foyt, they're all alive. They're all alive and in their 80s. So I was just thinking that, you know, you have this long time record where it turns out all four people that hold the record are still alive, that's which is and especially in racing. That, that's impressive. Right, right, right. Well, listen, we've had some racing analytics conversations on the show before. It's been a little while, but people may not realize how much analytics are going on behind the scenes in Indy and in NASCAR and F1. It's a big part of the sport. We thought it would be fun. Uh, on the heels of the Indy race this weekend to talk a little bit more about analytics and racing since we don't do it very often. So we dialed in Justin Moore, a guest, to bring us up to speed. Here's our conversation with Justin. Happy to welcome Justin Moore into the show. First time guest, Justin, thanks for joining us. Justin is a software engineer who moonlights as a college football analyst and Formula One researcher using algorithms to predict college football games and rank F1 drivers. Justin, glad to have you. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of the show. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Um, you, I'm, I'm not going to ask you about college football because it'll sidetrack us all together. <laughs> Let's do that another time. We thought about you because of Indy being this past weekend, Memorial Day weekend, of course, it was a fun race. And we're, I'm reminded anyway, every time I, every time I catch a little bit of a race, how much analytics is going on behind the scenes and we've occasionally had someone on here to talk about analytics, but we mostly don't. And so we, we want to grab somebody from the world of racing and talk a little bit of analytics. 
first did you so i know you're you're more of a you're more of a formula one guy but did you take in the race were you paying any attention to sunday's race did you did you have anything to say about it at all I, I did check in uh, afterwards, uh, you know, being being a Formula One guy, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of uh, kind of uh, cross pollination between Formula One and Indy. I think I saw about a half dozen uh, drivers on the 500 grid who uh, have some amount of Formula One experience, obviously okay. uh, Montoya, but also uh, I think Takumasato. Max Childton, all all former Formula One drivers. Okay, well, Justin, by the way, when and how did you get into Formula One? I've always been a Formula One fan. Uh, my dad was uh, just an auto racing guy, but uh, growing up, you know, Saturday, Sunday mornings uh, over the the spring through the fall were Formula One mornings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we do inherit these things typically. Uh, I'm curious to hear about your article with Neil Payne recently in 538. You took the task of trying to separate. This is at least my 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 read of it. You were separating the the performance of a driver from the performance of the team. And right. This is something that is there in some version operates in in all of racing because we've got these teams. They often have multiple drivers. Mm-hmm. And you know, as a, as a as a behavioral guy, as the behavioral guy on the pod, podcast, I appreciate the effort because it's so easy for us to we we tend to neglect the background of the context whenever we do these performance evaluations so people watching this sport casually probably over attribute performance to drivers and under attribute to teams this would be my guess but you've you've dug into this empirically and can you tell us a little bit about what you found in this in this recent 538 piece with neil sure so uh i think one one thing to note is that uh the effect that the team has on the outcome versus what the driver has, uh, it's not something that's fixed. You know, Formula One has been around kind of in its current form since 1950. So, you know, going back to the days when the cars were basically just kind of like a tube with four wheels, uh, all the way up to today where you've got, uh, you know, just finely tuned uh, winglets. You have uh, not just the technology of the car, but also uh, the strategists, the, the the pit wall, you know, everything that uh, is really helping the driver in their performance, you know, all of that has actually grown over time. Okay. So if you look at kind of the early days of the sports, uh, it was much more of like a 50-50 uh, split between the effect that the team had on the outcome of the race versus what the driver could do. Where is the actual quality of the car, Justin, in, in all this equation? Like, I'm just driving a better car than you have. So that comes, uh, that definitely is a bit large part of it, right? So the, the teams can affect, uh, you know, the engine, how well the engine and the chassis work together, uh, you know, how well the aerodynamic performance of the car uh, strikes a balance between low downforce uh, and uh, low drag on the straightaways versus how well the car can corner, right? Like with most sports, it's going to be a balancing act. And mm-hmm. the team and the driver will kind of work together to figure out how to tune the car for that. But the the team really does have more of an impact on the outcome, 
right? So my model says that it's about two to one in terms of what the team and the car bring to the table versus what the driver brings. So you're going to, to answer Eric directly, that your car, your car attribution falls within the team, basically. So you're separating yeah. driver from like everything else in some sense. Right, right. So just one quick follow-up to that. If, um, if you substituted one, let's say, Formula One driver for another, would mm -hmm. the team set up the car entirely differently? There would be a big difference in how they set up the car. Uh, the, even everything just down to the, the shape of the seat is molded to the driver to make sure that they can, can fit into the, the smallest possible space and still kind of have, uh, you know, visibility that they're kind of at the right height. Um, you know, all of these things are just really finely tuned to make sure that the car and the driver are working together as best as possible. Let's also add one other dimension. How about pre-race within race? How much of the winning percentage is, you know, um, my pit stops are faster than yours, or I'm making adjustments faster than you? Is there any way to break that out? That's a good question, and that's actually kind of uh, one of the next things that I'd like to investigate. I don't have a great answer for that. You know, there's definitely teams that are known for having better in-race strategy or have faster pit stops. Um, but, you know, on these, we, we are talking, at least with pit stops, you know, maybe like one or two seconds per pit stop, uh, which obviously can be huge. But in terms of how that compares to uh, what car development does, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how well we can break that out. It's kind of like with uh, football, you know, how much of it is the player versus the assignment. Um, I think that's something that really <laughs> needs to be, uh, you know, investigated a little bit more. So but I, 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 want, I want to note that there was some there was some pit crew that didn't get the back left back right tire on correctly at Indy. The guy comes out of the pit and loses his tire. I mean, talk about a tragic pit crew mistake. The, um, How about the correlation? How about this? How about could I take the best F1 driver? And mm -hmm. put them, and assuming they got enough experience, what do you think is the correlation between F1 skills and indie skills? Uh, that's another great question. You know, I, I think we've seen kind of a mixed record in terms of uh, Formula One drivers who have gone over to Indy or vice versa. So uh, Juan Pablo Montoya was, I think he won Indian '99. Uh, and then went over to uh, Formula One and spent several years over there in a top team. Uh, did relatively well, but kind of ran into uh, Michael Schumacher, who is a seven-time world champion, argu arguably one of the best drivers in history. Um, and then kind of after a while, came back to NASCAR, now back in, in IndyCar. So, you know, I, I think it's correlated, but the degree to which it's, it's correlated um, I think is, is not entirely clear. You know, in IndyCar, I think the driver might have a little bit more of a, an ability to affect the outcome just because the cars are a little bit more standardized. They're a little bit more spec. Whereas in Formula One, mm. there's more freedom to, you know, try different aerodynamic layouts, try, you know, uh, different things with engine development uh, than, than there is in IndyCar. Mm-hmm. Justin, can you talk a little bit about how, how you might, if we, if we broke drivers down one level deeper, 
what mm-hmm. would those dimensions look like? If, if we were going to talk about college football quarterbacks, we could come up with what we consider to be the four five or six most important attributes. If we were mm-hmm. to rate them, what attributes would rate, what would be those attributes for an F1 driver or perhaps even an Indy driver? So the, the two main dimensions that my current model breaks it down into is uh, speed and uh, basically reliability, you know, crashing or not crashing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, you see some drivers that are incredibly quick, uh, but have problems with car control, keeping it out of the wall. Uh, I'd say the, the top, <laughs> the, 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 the best example of this actually is, uh, Charles Leclerc, who currently is a driver for Ferrari. Um, he rated basically within the top five, uh, in our system for, uh, speed, but near the absolute bottom for reliability for, for Justin, in, in general, are these things negatively correlated? I mean, in your data, are they negatively correlated? Uh, no, because I, I think you have drivers that, that kind of approach things a little bit differently. Okay. And, you know, I've dug into it a little bit and I think there is some evidence to indicate that drivers improve, not just their speed or can improve, not just their speed, but also their, uh, their car control, their reliability over the course of their career. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. I think, okay. I think if we were to kind of go one level deeper, I think breaking out kind of qualifying performance, which is much more of a, you know, how quickly can you bang out these, mm-hmm. you know, five kind of 10 laps over the course mm-hmm. of an hour or so mm-hmm. uh, versus the race where it's, you know, much more of just this two hour kind of grueling lap after lap. Uh, experience. So Eric, I might be jumping in on you this, but I know Eric was interested in age curves in general. And you just referred to something like this, Justin, you said, maybe there's an ability, you think maybe, maybe in the data, there's a suggestion that the ability to control your car, stay out of crashes, improves with the experience. Castro Nevis, obviously an older winner at mm-hmm. Indy this year. So, was it, is he, is he at the Nicholas age? Bradley, was he 46? He is was he 46. Old? And I, Nick- I, Justin would know he might be the oldest ever to win the Indy 500. Is he? I don't know if he's the oldest or not. I think uh, AJ Foyt uh, okay. definitely set some records when when he was in his forties. Okay. So what what do you think that age curve looks like? In, and what other what, do we know anything about what improves with age? I'm sure so much goes down with age. But do we know anything in racing what improves with age? So I, I think what so to, to answer kind of the age curve question, I I, I think that uh, you know kind of in the data that I looked at. Um, I definitely have noticed a peak for a lot of drivers in the more modern era, kind of 1990 onward, in their early 30s. Okay. Um, and it, it tends to kind of slowly go downhill from there. And, you know, most drivers are out of Formula One by the time that they, they you know, are 38, 39. Um, I think IndyCar has probably a slightly different aging curve. But, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, the, the skill development that allows a Formula One driver to kind of extend their career, you know, being able to take better care of the car, of the tires, to be a little bit more, um, you know, patient and kind of strategic in how they approach a race versus when they're younger I would suspect that it's more about car control, reaction time, you know, how well can you put the car kind of into a gap that might be disappearing 
Whereas when you're older, you know, well, maybe I don't need to go for that right now. Yeah. Maybe I can wait. <laughs> yeah, Justin, but, but I wonder how much of that is wisdom versus like fear. I mean, there's, it reminds me of uh, talking to a buddy of mine a few weeks ago and he talked about playing golf with his son, who's a relatively new golfer, but he's gotten good, you know, he's a teenager. And he talks about how just fearless. He doesn't know anything could go wrong. He thinks he's supposed to par every hole. And here's my buddy, the 50-year-old. He's like, don't you realize all the trouble out there? This is something you learn. And so, I, you know, we talk about with golfers, the yips. The yips are problems with golfers late in life, not early. It's almost like the, the beauty of naivety, the innocence of these young guys. I wonder how much of it's that versus we'd like to, us old guys like to think it's wisdom. Maybe it's, maybe it's a lack of fear. Yeah, I mean, one one other way to kind of tackle this is to see, you know, look for drivers that had a really strong career kind of out of the gate, maybe, you know, peaking in their mid-20s and then kind of tailing off much earlier than, than the age curve would suspect. Uh, and to me, that would indicate a driver who has a lot of natural skill but didn't really take the time to develop other tools in their toolkit that would enable them to have that kind of longevity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, so Justin, let me ask you, since, you know, I'm also a big tennis fan, I'm also a racing fan, but tennis is Mm -hmm. going on right now. And of course it's the French open, which means it's the time for Nadal. And it made me think about racing. Are there racers like, should ability of a driver just be unidimensional, like this person's great on every track? Or like, you know, is it like tennis where Nadal's the best clay court player ever? That's undisputed. Let's say Sampras or Federer is the best grass court player ever of all time. Is there something similar to that that we should be thinking about, in, in whether it's F1 or IndyCar, et cetera? There are definitely drivers who seem to excel in certain courses. So... I think the canonical example of this is Iron Senna, who won Monaco, I believe, six times out of the, you know, maybe nine or ten races that he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, Lewis Hamilton has had a lot of success at, at Canada. So I, I think there are definitely, there's definitely anecdotal, you know, indications that certain drivers and certain courses just mesh really well. Mm-hmm. But you know, in terms of what it is about those courses and those drivers that really pair up well, um, I, you know, I, I think that's something that would be really intriguing to dig into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really cool. All right. Listen, we're going to let you go, Justin, but thank you for making time with us. Um, thank you for uh, the work that you're doing. You can find Justin's work on 538 recently with Neil Payne. You can also find his college football work, Tempo Free Gridiron. Tr- Tempo Free Gridiron is the name of the website that Justin's running. How else can people follow you, Justin? Uh, at TF Gridiron on Twitter. Wonderful. All right, Justin Moore, appreciate you being here. We'll talk to you more down the road. Thanks. So that was our conversation with Justin Moore, a little bit on racing analytics. Take a chance to dive into that. We will try to do more of that down the road. And that has been our second quarter, the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Rolling into Q3 now, another open mic, open sports segment. This is Kate Massey, joined by Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen is out and about doing Shane Jensen things this week. He will be back. We're always here. We're doing it every every week now for seven plus years. Gentlemen, uh, what else is on your mind in the world of sports? I saw a note from you, Eric. I didn't miss this thing. Apparently, Jordan Spieth, my boy, 
blew a late a late lead. What happened here? Yeah, so I, you know, I'm I've always been a huge uh, Jordan Spieth fan, um, and he obviously he won. A, he's got I think three majors. I know he's got three majors, um, but he hasn't won one in a while ever since blowing that lead on the back nine of the Masters, um, and. He's now playing. He was down to like a hundredth in the world. He had fallen totally off a cliff. This year, he's playing really well. He did win once, um, but he's now. I think you guys remember this record. Something like Tiger Woods has gone into the final round of a tournament leading fifty-seven times and has won fifty-five. Jordan Spieth That's this absurd. year. It's absurd. Jordan Spieth this year has gone into the final round leading four times and has run once. And so he blew another lead. No, it was a one-shot lead. I don't want to make it seem like he was up by 10 shots. But he was also playing against the guy, uh, Kokrak is his last name, who won for the first time this year, had played 240 tournaments on the PGA Tour and had never won before. Mm. And Jordan Spieth shot 75 in the final round, shot plus Mm. three. You just can't do that. And Mm -hmm. so while I'm encouraged because Spieth is climbing up the points board, I'm wondering, you know, he's very positive. He's speaking positive, 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 but he's reinforcing losing close tournaments now. Mm -hmm. So it's better than, look, I'd rather be him right now than he was when he was a hundred and something in the world and he couldn't even make the cut. But I'm getting concerned that he's not able to close when the pressure is really there. And this is going to start to wear on him. So I'm hoping he has a really good showing at the U S open and maybe he can do some damage there. I, it, 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 I'm, I'm such a fan that I'm happy to be pulled into this narrative and I can buy your story, but I do wish we had better analytics on it. I, we, there, we do see a lot of golfers play a lot of tournaments. We ought to be able to say more than I believe we can say about performance under pressure. And what is just chance, because there's a lot of chance in golf, versus a pattern. And it's early to call it a pattern, but I think we're all worried about it. And so and this also one of these things, one of the stories I do believe about golf is that sometimes it's good to be young and dumb. And these guys come out, they don't know any better. Spieth had never not won anything when he was 20 years old or 22 years old. And it was just unbelievable what he was on. And then all of a sudden he realizes he's human after all. Listen, I want to, I want to, uh, about golf. I'm sorry, Eric, did you have something else? No, no, no. I was just going to say, I think, you know, we'll see. I'm hoping this leads to the reemergence. I look, you get enough swings at the plate. You're going to start winning. Spieth was just considered one of the great golfers uh, potentially of his era. I was just assuming that, you know, right now he's probably winning no worse than the marginal rate for the average golfer, but that's not Spieth. Spieth's a multi-time major winner. I expect him to close more than one in four. And if we look over the last five years, I think he's closed like maybe two out of 11. So, you know, eventually he needs to close. I Mm -hmm. I, want to, that's not Jordan Spieth. At his level of ability, that closing percentage is unacceptable to me. Well, for the time being, I'm going to celebrate his being there at the end after not being there there for a while. And, um, and we'll see how, we'll see how, as you say, we'll see how he shows up at Torrey Pines. On the golf front, guys, I want to take a chance to, to pimp the, my favorite format in sports. I'm, I'm always talking about this, and I think I lose credibility because I, I usually the University of Texas is in the finals of the NCAA men's golf tournament, and they're not this year. And so I want to talk about it free of any Longhorn bias because I just love the format. And we talk about format on the show reasonably often and what's optimal and playoff design, and we argue about it in college football how big the playoffs should be. And, and to, in my mind, the, the NCAA has gotten the men's tournament just about right. And one of the things I want to give them credit for is how creative it is. It's different. And if they're, 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 it's seemingly based on 
um, them being real thoughtful about it. They only changed it in 2009. That was the first year they went to the current format. Before that, it was stroke play for like 50 years. And before that, it was match play. And so they've had these different formats. It was match for a long time. Then it was stroke for a long time. And now it's this combination of stroke and match. So let me just, I'm going to try to see if y'all appreciate it as much as I do, or maybe call me out. Maybe tell me I'm wrong. I'm also got a, a little bit of a trivia, not trivia. Like, let me give you some over under kind of questions here in a second. All right. So the, one of the premises for me in sports is that it, it really needs to be decided on the field as much as possible. You want the head to head, even if you know that with the head to head, there's more chance involved. And so, but you want it played out on the field. So some amount of the, the playoff needs to be in the field, but, you know, take, take, for example, NCAA basketball, where all kinds of crazy things happen, but people are quite happy because look, it's 64 teams. Everybody had a shot. The games were played. It was all played out on the field. We didn't, you know, pick the thing with computers like we did for NCAA football for a while, but in golf, there's so much chance. If you just did straight up match play, from the beginning of the tournament, you might have more randomness than you really want. And one idea here in sports, you're kind of choosing into optimal structure. You're kind of choosing how much randomness you want. It's not none, but it's not like all coin flips either. Just and to be so, clear, how many players are playing in this match play? This is now I'm going to give you the whole design. All right. And I'm really more interested in the team side of this than the player side of this. Okay. So here's how it works. There are six regionals and five teams come out of those. I don't even know how many teams play in the regionals, but there are six regionals and the top five teams of each regional come out for the NCAA final. So there are 30 teams that go into the finals. Okay. okay. And, and I'm going to ask you some questions here. So you'll stay with me. So they'll play three rounds. <clears throat> uh, they play five players and they take the best four scores. And after three rounds, they cut the field from 30 to 15. And then they play another day and they cut the field from 15 to eight all on stroke play. So they just play to be four. clear. It's three rounds to go from 30 to 15 and then one round to go from 15 to correct, eight. Correct. And still best four out of five scores. Yeah. And that's all stroke play. And they're doing, okay. they're doing individual play along the way. And so anytime yeah. they cut the field, they bring along a few golfers that might not have been on the teams that qualify. And after four days, they declare the individual medalist and they go to match play for the team side. Okay, so 30 to 15 to eight, and then they go to match play. And then it's just head up, head to head, the, the, the top. So let's stop there. If you took, they, they're, they're ranked, when they start the tournament, they're ranked, they're national rankings of some kind. What do you think the field looked like this year? I don't know how representative this was in terms of the final eight teams that made the match play side of it. So if we start out seeded one through 30, say, based on national rankings, what do you think the worst team was that made after four days of stroke play to get into the finals, to get the, the eight-team match play? What's the worst seed that made that turn, made the, made the finals? Well, here's the thing. I, I'm going to guess it's lower than I would have initially guessed, but it's due to the four out of five, because I would imagine the top teams have more depth, but I don't need depth. I just need four players to play well which is less than five players playing well. So I'm going to guess, oh, well, I'm making that 22 or 23. So I, I, this is anecdotal, okay? So it's anecdotal because it's just one year. I couldn't get more history on the number. But this year, the worst seed in the top, in the final eight is 11. 
Wow. Very few t- of the top eight teams, like three of the top eight teams didn't make it my long orange. One of them, by the way, they were the worst of the, of the teams. They're the top of the teams that didn't qualify. So they, they have a design here, which I bet if you go back statistically, that a lot of the times they're getting a majority of the top teams are making the eight team finals. And now they go to match. So one and eight play a match heads up. They played it this morning. Two and seven play a match. Heads up. They played it this morning. These are five guys. All five guys count. And it's just the best number, the, the you know, best out of five matches. So, and then the, they play quarters in the morning. They play semis. They're playing semis right now. As we record Tuesday afternoon, they're playing the semifinals right now. And the top two teams will play a 36-hole match tomorrow for the championship. All right. So I've, what happens? What do you think happens? This has been going on since 2009. 2020 was canceled because of pandemics. We have 11 years of this format. Now we reseed the teams one to eight for these last two days. How often do you think the number one seed wins? This is match play now. You understand? One out of eight. Yeah, exactly. So Eric goes pure random. Of course, that's too far. Yeah, but, but I mean, all right. So what I think is 12 and a half percent. I'll be extreme and I'll go double that. It's at most 25 percent. Yeah, well, we only have 11 years. And so, so two out of, I'm going to go higher than that. Two out of 11. Contrary. contrary. Well, I, I'm asking you two extreme. I've, I've cherry picked the data here. So only one time has the number one seed won. And only three other times has the number one seed played in the finals. And if you looked at the average, let me just read you. I haven't taken the average of this column, but the seeded of, of one to eight seeds, the winning team has been seeded sixth, first, second, sixth, seventh, second, third, third, seventh, sixth, seventh. The point of that is there's a lot of variation in golf in these match play tournaments. You know this from some of the professional tour. The match play tournaments are crazy high variance. So you don't, you don't want to select the field that way, but you do. It's the optimal way to run, in my opinion, the finals because it's head to head. It's the perfect late. Let's solve it on the, on the, on the course and everything is transparent. You're not waiting to add up scores at the end. It's like knockout, knockout way of uh, approaching things. I, does this appeal to y'all at all? I think it's absolutely brilliant. I love the creativity. I love the fact that they've adopted over more than a hundred years. Well, the other possibility, uh, Kate, is that there's, you know, eight to 10 really good teams. And then there's a massive fall off of a cliff. And whether you did match play or stroke play, you'd get a uniform distribution. In other words, there isn't any, there's 50 good, I mean, I'm just saying that would lead to the same data that you have here. And so um, I I like match play in the sense that it it, uh, promotes, it rewards people that go for birdies, right? Right, right, right. Because you lose a hole, so what? It's one hole out of 18. You can shoot a seven. A seven's the same as a five. You're not winning the hole with either of those two scores. And so it leads to aggressive play, which I like to see as a fan. Um, I don't know how much, as you said, though, um, does it reward? Is it is it an equalizer? Does it equalize the play amongst the eight? We don't have the counterfactual. I think, I think it introduces, we don't, but I think it introduces variance compared to stroke play, but also it in, introduces drama. Consider how much fun it is to watch the Ryder Cup. Oh, every, no, it's phenomenal. Couple of years. It's like, this, it's just a different way of consuming the sport. Is this fair to, in college to be adding so much randomness? I mean, they're usually, in college athletics, are usually a pretty big spread, much in talent much more so than we see at the professional level. Um, and then to just 
indulge that with a lot of randomness. It, it's great well, fun to watch, but if you if you have a horse in the race and you feel well, that the best the best team should win with a high probability, uh, at least decently high. Okay, this is tournament design. This is why I think it's so much fun and so interesting, and that's why I like stroke play over four days to ensure that the top eight teams are pretty representative of the best eight teams. But then I love the match play as the way this thing is going to get resolved. But because it's high variance, you just, you just live with that. But it means you need to set the field as, you know, representatively as possible. Look, I can't think of a sport where you would say it would be an unfair and undeserved win if one of the top eight teams won. It just, right. it, it just wouldn't be. Right. I mean, it, it, just, it would be like, well, I didn't expect them to win. They weren't the one seed, but all right, the six won. Six Eric, wins it, sometimes. That's okay. I agree. And digging, and digging this up, I noticed the early years, who was on these Augusta State teams? The first two years of this format in 2009 and 2010, Augusta friggin' State won the national championship in 2009 and 2010. They were the seventh and the sixth seed in those two years, the seeds once they reached the final eight. But usually when you look at these, I mean, the same, the same schools represent it pretty frequently in these, in these final eight. But Augusta State had something big going on in the late 2000s because they won the thing twice. Um, by the way, as I said, they're playing the semis right now. And something, after saying all this chance, they're actually chalky. This morning, the quarters were chalky. Seeds one, two, three, and four beat seeds eight, seven, six, and five. And so the semis are one, two, three, and four. Who is that? I'm trying to coach you guys into watching a little golf. It's kind of fun. Arizona State is number one. They're going against Oklahoma right now. Oklahoma State is number two, going against Pepperdine. The top two of those teams will play a 36-hole match tomorrow. Huh. Adi, that's more men's golf than you want. The more NCAA golf than you probably wanted. It's, it's more than I've ever heard, but I'm trying to dig into it because I'm collecting some nice data sets. And I've and uh, for my summer program, which is starting in a, in four weeks, um, and uh, I've got a couple of nice golf ones. And there's there's some good good data, and we can, I I learn just by lo- by looking at the data, but I, I enjoy the context. Well, we could probably simulate these tournaments and these different designs to to talk about to get a more uh, quantitative. Uh, perspective on what the differences are. But I think the part I like is... the most, Kate, about it, to be honest with you, is the best four out of five. I think I like that the most. I don't mind trimming off the worst golfer. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it prevents one person's bad day from affecting, you know, four people shoot 69, one person shoots 83, and then all of a sudden the, the team loses. Well, that doesn't happen right now. Well, I hope, I hope I'm right about that. I know they're counting four golfers, and, I'm, and they're playing, I believe they're playing five. And we used to always play four out of five, but um, that was not at the collegiate level. Guys, uh, what about, we've just got a couple minutes here to wrap up this. We've got an interview next quarter with Seth Partnow on the NBA. We're going to dig into basketball a little bit more. Anything about the playoffs so far that has your attention, especially anything you're excited about? Embiid, is, how bad is this injury here? Potentially bad. I mean, he's, he's, very, he's questionable for game five. Look, the Sixers are going to beat the, uh, the Wizards um, without Embiid. They're up 3-1. I think they can win one more game, maybe even they can beat the Hawks or the Knicks, uh, the winner of that series, because that's the matchup now. But without a very, very, very healthy Embiid, they have no chance of beating the Nets or the Bucks. Right. And so this is, a, this is one of those situations where I, I don't want to say trust the process again, but I will say the following. When the Sixers broke up the team the last time, they weren't at the bottom of the NBA. They were a playoff team that couldn't get past the first or the second round. Mm-hmm. Well, 
they're about to be, again, a playoff team that can't make it to the finals. Now, maybe their ceiling's a little bit higher, but, I mean, how many years are you going to give Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, now you've added Tobias Harris, how many years are you going to give these guys before you move on? And so Embiid's injuries caught my eye. Anthony Davis injured himself in the last Laker game. So now the Lakers went from the most favored team to the fourth most favored team due to his Mm -hmm. injury. Mm -hmm. Um, Chris Paul is still injured for the Suns. Um, I I think it's going to be whichever team stays the healthiest. I think if the Nets stay healthy. Are they they back to full strength? They are back to full strength. Okay, and have they been as impressive as people expected them to be? They have. Three to one. Um, It took maybe one of the great games in Celtic playoff history by Jason Tatum, who who dropped 50 on – I mean, he was hitting shots from all over, and they won the game by, I think, four. So he had to have one of the great games in Celtic. Celtic Mm -hmm. playoff history for them (laughs) to win by four, and that was at home. No, I mean, they're beating the Celtics. I'm – I'm – I think they're going to beat the Bucks, but I don't think it's going to be that easy. Okay. Well, like I said, we're going to have a conversation in the next half hour with Seth Part. Now we're going to learn a little bit about his take on the playoffs, but also basketball analytics more generally. It's a good time of year to be boning up on what that field has been doing. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now, what has traditionally become our interview segment. I'm joined, Cade Massey here, joined by my colleagues, Adi Weiner and Eric Bradlow in this segment. And delightfully, we are joined by Seth Part. Now, many of you know Seth from various writings, mostly about basketball. He covers the NBA and basketball analytics for The Athletic. He resides in Milwaukee. He used to be director of basketball research for the Bucks, actually. And has been a visitor on the show and a, and a colleague at conferences. And we're always delighted to have a chance to talk with you, Seth. Good to see you. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Delighted to. Listen, man, our agenda for the day is a little bit like a conversation we had last week with Sam Ventura of the Penguins and Carnegie Mellon. Kind of twofold. What are you seeing in the playoffs? Kind of let's, let's just take a look around the league and see what's catching your eye in the playoffs. And then while we're at it, why don't you give us a little bit of a tutorial on basketball analytics? We know a few things, but we don't spend as much time on basketball analytics as, as uh, the world of basketball analytics does. And uh, enough so that we really kind of feel like we need to be doing a regular refresher. But let's start with the, with the, with the straight up fun part. What, what in the playoffs has caught your eye so far? What are you enjoying? What storylines are you following? He better say the one team that went undefeated in the first round, but you go ahead, given where he's located and what he used to do for a living, but you go ahead, Seth. Well, that's, that's certainly one aspect of the first round, but I still feel coming into the playoffs, I had as little sense of how things were going to play out as in any season that I can remember. And certainly the, the Bucks sweeping the first round for nothing was a, it provided a little bit of clarity there, but still given especially the impact of injuries uh, in the Western conference. I'm still very confused kind of as, <laughs> as to how this is all ending up. Yeah. So uh, go ahead. I'll jump in here. I just want, you mentioned that for, uh, for uh, no sweep, it provides some clarity. Does it really, is there information in the number of games won in the first round that um, it, it provides clarity in so far as a lot of the, sort of worries about uh, 
some aspects of the Bucks in the last couple of playoff runs were to a degree answered. Now, whether beating a Miami team that frankly wasn't playing very well, how that equates to playing against presumably Brooklyn, there's a, there's a gulf in quality in, in, in quality of opponent there, but in terms of, of sort of certain adjustments and, 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 and lineup choices, the Bucks did some things in that series that they haven't necessarily done the last couple of years. I think also, if I have a correct, Seth, I may have the year wrong, but is this Drew Holiday's first year with the Bucks? Yeah. Okay. So to me, if there is going to be a difference maker, it's him. It's Drew Holiday. I think he's an excellent defender. He's an excellent floor manager. I think he'll get everybody. I think he gives them an opportunity. I still put him as an underdog, but I still give, he gives them an opportunity to beat the Nets. And remember, Adi, just so you know, they beat the Heat 4 nothing. Remember, the Heat were the representative in the Eastern Conference uh, in the finals last year. And actually, no different to team. I mean, there's not like they lost a bunch of players, really, from last year to this year. And so... The fact that the Bucks beat him for nothing, I think, is somewhat informative, and um, I think the Bucks are a bet a much better team than last year. The problem is, I think the Nets are much better than they are. But I think it's not that the Bucks aren't better. I think the Bucks are better. Seth, I mean, what do the analytics say? Are the Bucks better? So the, this year has been so weird because of the compressed schedule, because of sort of the random health and safety protocol absences. Um, that's part of why I felt more sort of at sea coming into the playoffs is you just didn't get as good a handle, especially as, you know, certain teams realized, okay, we're going to be one of the top three seeds. So the rest of the year is more about maintenance than it is about pushing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and this has been a trend that's been going on for a number of years in, in the NBA is I think that the regular season is providing less and less signal mm -hmm. for what a team might look like in the postseason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, this difference. And, and how, how would you characterize the difference between regular season, what matters in the regular season versus what matters in the playoff? You know, we talk sometimes about the fact that 538's basketball rankings, a couple of years ago, they shifted so that they would have a, a playoff ranking and it's different from the regular season ranking. What is conventional wisdom on factors, team factors, or individual qualities that matter more in the playoffs than matter in regular season? So the obvious one is depth matters less in the playoffs. Uh, there's a little bit less travel, generally a, um, at least predictable time between games. Not uh, A lot of the series are every other day, but there's no back-to-backs. Mm -hmm. um, so less because you're, you're, the games are more important. There's fewer games to come. So you, there's less, you know, saving guys for, you know, what 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 happens next? So then your your if your star goes from thirty four to forty minutes, that's six minutes less that your eighth man plays, and mm -hmm. and so it goes from how good are your top nine to how good is your top seven. Mm -hmm. That's sort of mm -hmm. been a bit of of conventional wisdom, but also I think it, the the part where the divergence is really becoming more is strategically. Um, you know, this this is the one place where I can I can talk about this probably most most places eyes will glaze over, but. Uh, you know, the regular season is a very game theory optimal environment. Um, playoffs are all about exploitive play. Like, you know, you sit down at the table, there's nine people you don't know. How do you play your hands? There's a, mm -hmm. there's a general strategy you can use that against the, the universe of opponents will work well. You're playing one team that you know very well seven times in a row. You do some things very differently. Mm -hmm. 
okay, so just to, let's be clear about what you're doing. You're drawing analogies to poker, and there is at this point kind of received wisdom on what is the optimal way to play game theory optimal for poker and then a different way to play that doesn't that's independent of your read of a opponent's tells or in psychology and yeah. exploitive play is what you think uh you know about this person that's idiosyncratic and it might lead you to deviate from what otherwise would be considered game theory optimal. yeah what you're saying once you get into these series mainly because of the what you learn the depth of uh, information you have about a team and the repeated matchups that people start the strategy is different in this case it's more tailored and idiosyncratic to the opponent is that the, what you're saying um it's it's both the amount you've learned but also just the level of of kind of prep time that you have is a huge uh, difference okay this is this is you know how uh, since i know you you guys all spend a lot more time on football the difference between four games a week and one game a week in terms of of how much opponent specific prep you can do is mm-hmm. is massive, and mm-hmm. so that that is kind of one of the big switches, and we're seeing it, I think, again more and more every year. The difference in play style uh, between kind of let's get through the season. Okay, so Seth, does that who, what what types of teams or players are are there individual coaches that that privileges? Does that mean it's a net advantage to be a, a good coaching staff, or is that a kind of a leveler? coaching staffs which way does it go um well so coaching is one of those things that we tend to talk about as sort of a uh a universal sort of one metric he is a good coach he is a bad coach and there are coaches who are better or worse at certain things and so um kind of the the motivation keep the team together stuff that is very important probably the most important thing through a regular season is probably a little less important in the playoffs because you know there there's you have to think that for a team that knows they have a chance, there's certainly a degree of, you know, exogenous mo- uh, motivation. Interesting. Um, with, but then it's, it's adjustments and not just like scheming them, but communicating them becomes, mm. becomes the more kind of re- relevant skill. So, mm. and just as with, with players, certain skills are more valuable in a regular season context relative to the playoffs and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any particular coaches that you um, think are especially good at this, at the strategizing or the, or are known for exploiting individual matchups once they get into a series? Um, all, all the ones that I would normally say are all um, at home now. Um, <laughs> that, that's okay. Would, we, know, understand, the, the, we understand. We understand no, the variance. Seth. No, 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 the three, the three coaches that, that I would usually say are, are uh, Greg Popovich, uh, Nick nurse and Eric Spolstra. Um, mm-hmm. now it, adjustments only go so far if you don't, if you don't have the horses, so to speak. So, yeah, right, right, right. You know, um, uh, and I think that's probably more true in basketball than, than most perhaps other than, than baseball than most other sports. Okay. So, so Seth, can, can you make it a little bit more real for me? So, sure. um, imagine uh, take a, can you give me a team that plays very differently, um, against sort of the randomized, randomly selected opponent than they would against a specific po- opponent in the playoffs, and how would that actually play out on the court? Um, so it's 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 more. Um, I think it's still easy to keep this in general terms. Um, you know, it, over the course of the season, okay, you know how the team you're about to play plays defense, and you have your your playbook of of 100 plays, and okay, how they play defense, these 20 will work well against how they play defense. In the playoffs, you you just like, okay, 
let's 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 put in 20 new plays mm-hmm. that specifically attack the weak points of their defense don't you have to just, learn them and and practice yeah, but, them i mean it's not a good idea to do that but you have that prep time you have before a playoff series you can do that okay. whereas in the regular season when you played last night or were on a flight yesterday there isn't the time to to make those game to game adjustments Seth, there was a recent article. I thought it was super interesting about uh, the change in some offensive players' success in the playoffs because essentially his argument was because of the quality of defense they face. So Kevin Pelton wrote a piece for the ESPN a couple of days, days ago, you probably saw. And he talked about people like James Harden who kind of make a living in the regular season on drawing fouls, seeing their production drop in the playoffs primarily because they play better defenses and t- and the and better defensive teams are better at avoiding those kinds of fouls. And they don't and, call fouls as much. At least the, the lore is that they don't call fouls as much in the playoffs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you, did you, do, do you, do you buy the argument? You like the argument? I thought it was a neat way to make a little bit more objective and um, kind of quantifiable. Some of these differences we talk about between playoffs and regular season. Um, I, I absolutely, I think KP and I've, I've talked about stuff along this line a lot before. And yeah, no, I absolutely buy it that there's the, again, the, the different skill sets get emphasized. So naturally certain things we better um, sort of those, you know, if, if a player has, as you say, a very idiosyncratic move, where if you see them once every six weeks or so, you might get called for some touch fouls because, Oh, I knew he was going to do that, but I forgot. Whereas if, if it's, you're locked <laughs> in on that one guy for seven games over two weeks, mm-hmm you know, you, you might get caught once with your hand in sort of your hand in the cookie jar in game one. Mm-hmm. But after that, it's like, okay, I touched the hot stove. Now I know not to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seth, what about Eric Bradlow's favorite theory? Eric, you want to give him your theory of uh, big men and playoffs, because I'd like to hear a real expert respond to the long held, long espoused Bradlow theory. That means I'm I'm a faux expert, is what he's saying, <laughs> Seth. But let me give you my theory. So I, I grew up, you should understand my history. I grew up in New York City. Uh, my team was New York Knicks. Obviously, the best player was Patrick Ewan. And the Bulls had a very easy way of stopping him, which is you press the backcourt, you make him take 10 seconds to get the ball over the line, you pressure the passer, the ball gets to Ewing, your best player. But by then, there's about six seconds left on the shot clock because Ewing doesn't bring the ball up the court. You double-team him. You have to get four passes to the fifth-blessed player on the team, and that player misses the shot. And I I compare that to the Sixers when he's not injured, Joel Embiid. You can't get him the ball either at the end of the game. And so now you say, well, of course, it's your guard. Well, that's, of course, Ben Simmons, and he can't shoot the ball. So my theory, I'll say it in one line, you're never going to win the title in the modern NBA when your best player is your center that can't handle the ball. That's my theory. I'm, I'm glad you added that last caveat because um, unfortunately we won't really get a chance to test it because their second best player, Jamal Murray blew out his ACL, um, you know, towards the end of the season. But Denver was, was probably the team I would have picked to win the title going into the playoffs had they been healthy and the big difference between them and sort of what you're talking about is their center, Nikola Jokic can handle the ball and basically can mm-hmm. bring the ball up the court and do those things. And there's a, there's a lot to what you're saying. Um, there's a reason why in sort of the last, I don't know, close to 40 years of NBA basketball, it has been a wing dominated league down at the end. 
Um, and it's because of a lot of what you're talking about. You have to have someone to to get the ball to the big man in the post. And, you know, you saw this last year with, with the, with the Sixers getting swept in the first round, like Embiid was fine. They just couldn't get him the ball because they had just very poor guard play in, in the postseason. Um, mm-hmm. I do. I think I mean, the one made... exception you can say, although they were great at so many positions was, well, what about the Spurs of the nineties and the early two thousands, Tim Duncan? Yeah. But they also had, you know, uh, uh, Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili weren't potzers out there playing right. hard. And, you know, for at least his first couple of years, they had David Robinson. And so it's, but yeah, Tim Duncan wasn't handling the ball, but the bottom line is they were better at other positions. And the, and the other interesting part about that is, is sort of the, the last shot, um, the, the, you know, the, the ball in hands down one uh, to tie is um, the, that shot generally went to Ginobili or Parker because of a lot of what you're talking That's about. That's my point. Yeah, especially in situations where you have to control the time as well as uh you know what what shots you're getting it's just easier if it, if it's a ball handler. So how can we object how can we um operationalize this idea? I think I think this is consistent with what you're saying Eric and it's just like in playoffs that end game that end game what is it this the sub game that happens at the end. I forget the game theoretic term for that. is just more important. And so the teams that have players who can in those moments i don't know create it execute it seem to have an advantage again maybe just because we have more of those in-game moments in playoffs between equally matched teams um so that's not actually true is that interesting to say that no this is this is an interesting thing that 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 i found is that blowouts are actually more common in the playoffs than in the regular season Hmm. It's not, it's not a, by a huge amount, but you know. Now, but but if, are you? What if you took out like the first round? No, so you, the, you the, condition the for round conference finals are the are the place where there are a higher proportion of twenty point really? blowouts than at really? any point. Yes, interesting. This is, it, yeah, um, there are a number of possible reasons for that, none of which I'm I'm sure why, but mm-hmm. but so I do think we tend to focus a little bit you know, the end of game moments are those indelible things, but the best yeah. way to not lose close games is to not play close. Not games. be in those. Yeah. In those in, yeah so, absolutely. so yes, I think that kind of as a tiebreaker, having that last second shot maker is, is very powerful. I think just winning the game by, you know, yeah, being, that's ahead, good. being ahead eight with two minutes left. Is, is Can I, uh, well, hold on. I just want to, I don't want to own up to that because he's calling I mean, me out on something that I think is exactly right. That, that, and I, and I'm, I, I call others out on other sports all the time, and here I am completely falling prey to it. I 100% hear what you're saying, and I'll accept that correction. Adi, jump in. I was just going to add a mathematical point that close is not likely if uh, if you if you think of every if each team is playing hard as possible, trying to score as much as possible in every turn. There's a certain um, just mathematically, probabilistically, with the stochastics of a, of a random walk, you should expect to have big leads or big big directions in either big one team winning by more, more than a little in in almost every circumstances. I would argue, I'm not sure this is true, Seth. You can point this out. There's a certain closeness that happens potentially more in the regular season because there's a certain style of of protection. It doesn't really matter that much. You're trying to rest. I don't know. I mean, you can fill in the blanks. But I know that if there's if one team is better than another team, you should expect bigger gaps, not small ones. If everyone well, plays every point like it matters. No, that's absolutely right. There's there, so there's a, 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 a you guys might ha- have have a better, more technical name for it, but the rubber band effect 
is yep. sort of the, the the team that's leading tends to play worse. The team that's trailing tends to play better. That's reasonably strong in the regular season in the NBA. Um, it basically uh, vanishes uh, in the wow. playoffs until you get to about a 20-point lead. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. Um, and I think that goes a lot to what Adi is saying. Is like, yeah, in the regular season, it's like, okay, we'll put our – or get our, our 12th man some minutes. We'll, you know, mm-hmm. well, it's time for me to get, get my stats, whatever yeah. uh, in the playoffs. No, it's. Win at all costs. Yeah. Win it, yeah. <laughs> As you said, I, I love what you play, said, but... is that the best way to prevent a close game is, is make a large one to the best yeah. way to just get, make sure you have a big lead. I mean, this is one of my favorite aphorisms. I toss about of almost every sport is point, a point scored early matters just the same as a point scored at the, at the end. They still count the same amount. Well, that's a whole different conversation. Let's it not really jump is. into that. Let's not jump into that one right now. I love we could do a whole thirty minutes on that. Um, Seth, before we leave the playoffs, you mentioned that the Nuggets were would have been your favorites coming into the season had they stayed healthy. At this point, one essentially one series into the playoffs, who are your favorites on both sides, and who are you kind of romancing? You're thinking about putting into that favorite spot. Um. So, I've some. This, this is a lot of. Uh, I was actually having this conversation with with, uh, with with someone in the league yesterday, and they they sort of opined that assuming that Brooklyn closes out Boston, that the second round series between the Bucks and Nets is essentially the NBA Finals. Wow, okay. I agree with um, that. And that's um, I would say that the winner of, of that series probably is the favorite. Um, as of right now, I don't even know who I would pick as like the the plurality favorite. Um, so much as you know, we we we're waiting to hear on the status of Joel Embiid after he got injured yesterday. We don't know what the status of Anthony Davis is. Obviously, that's a huge swing in the Lakers even getting out of the first round. So that's you know that's two of the six or so potential like championship teams kind of off the board, mm-hmm. like just you know before the first round ends not even if they advance almost mm-hmm. 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 all right well I, I like i'll go back to your first comment at the top of this show that you, there was more uncertainty going into this year's playoffs than in years and we've whinged a lot on this show about about the certainty of the nba playoffs and so we should all be embracing a little bit more of an open uh, open run any chance the one team that people aren't talking about seth which maybe they should be a little bit more is the clippers any chance that you know now with ad we know is hurt lebron's never been back to healthy now so they're not i mean we know what you just we've been talking about denver dallas is maybe a few years away but you know uh, uh, Doncic is hurt as well so is there any chance the clippers come out of the west and give boston or uh i'm not the the nets or the bucks a hard time Absolutely. Um, you know, they, they obviously there was a lot of uh, a lot of agitation after losing the first two games in that series. But um, at this point, I think most people think they would probably they're probably going to win the next two and close it out in six. Mm-hmm. Um, they for the first three games, they sort of survived a barrage of of uncharacteristic shot making from the Mavericks. Yep. And uh, that that worm sort of turned in game four and Dallas probably has to dial that up again to, to get another game just because the Clippers are. And you're not putting any better. stock in the regular season where I think, you know, the two best teams yeah. in the regular season were Utah and Phoenix, and you're not putting any weight on them. Um, Phoenix is an interesting one. Um, they, they were a team that would pro- probably be more 
put more weight on if they had more experience. Um, it's actually, um, you know, correlation is not causation, obviously, but it would be basically unprecedented for a team with Phoenix's like relatively low level of playoff experience to make the finals minus um, CP three. Who's maybe yeah. got too much experience. Yeah, no, but, but, but like, <laughs> yeah, well, yes. Um, but even, even him factored in like the, the only team that's comparable is the, uh, the, the 14, 15 warriors. The first time the, the warriors won the, won the title. Um, and like, I think that's a, um, not a fair analogy for this, for, for any team. But for the yeah, Suns yeah, team, right. like they're not at that at that level. I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's them. Uh, and then Utah is just um, there's the, there's the stylistic questions about whether they're um, well equipped for the playoff game. And I think we're seeing some of it against Memphis. Their their complete inability to, comp- to contain dribble penetration against Memphis. It's not really they're not in much danger against Memphis, but against a team that has more shooters like the Clippers, like anyone they're going to face later in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. That's the worry for the Jazz. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good fun. All right, Seth, thank you for that. We're talking to Seth Partnow, longtime basketball writer, analyst. He works uh, – well, he, he writes for The Athletic and does some uh, – used to work for the Bucks, And importantly, is publishing a book later this year. I believe the name is The Midrange Theory, scheduled for debut five months from now, November – November 2nd. Um, Seth, what can you tell us about the book? What can you tell us about your motivation for it? And then maybe most importantly, if we had your book now, how would we be consuming these playoffs differently? If we, if we had your book, we read it, we digested it, we understood it. How do you think we'd be consuming these playoffs differently? Oh, wow. That's, that's several big questions. I think we've actually touched on our, our conversation about the playoffs actually very much mirrors like the discussion in, in, uh, the, in, the chapter in the book on the playoffs. So okay. we've hit a lot on a lot of the same things, just the, you know, the matchups, the preparation differences, mm-hmm. sort of the, the game theory optimal versus exploitive kind of thing. And what that means for, um, you know, different, different player skill types. Um, okay. So um, in terms of the motivation, um, it was, it was sort of uh, fortuitous that, that, uh, that the triumph publishing called me up and said, Hey, do you want to write a book? So I was like, Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Always nice. Yeah. But um, a lot of it is, is, I mean, you alluded to the kind of the, the notes that have been released with the pre-order. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what sports analytics, basketball analytics specifically, but sports analytics more broadly are, is, are. Um, and I think addressing some of that was, was sort of the meta reason for, for okay. writing it. It's, it's, okay. you know, there, there's a, I, I think you guys probably know this. There's, there's the, the, uh, the stigma out there that we're a bunch of know-it-alls who don't watch the games. Mm-hmm. And it's like the exact opposite where, you know, the more you learn about this stuff, the more you realize you don't know and you have to how the, the thing that you're, you're finding in the data uh, actually plays out on the court or on the field mm-hmm. um, and just sort of exploring sort of that aspect of it a little. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can you give us an example? Maybe maybe you're going to use one of the book, but can you give us an example from your own life of how you think differently about basketball now than you, maybe you did five or 10 years ago before you got as deep into analytics 
as you are now or something you've learned or the way your understanding has evolved? Um, I think the, 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 the biggest thing is, is uh, learning to accept the, um, the role that, you know, for lack of a better term, luck plays mm. in, in all this, you know, you growing up as a sports fan, you of course get, get the, you know, all the narratives about, you know, uh, willpower and, and, and refusal to lose and stuff like that. And then you, then <laughs> right. it's like, those are, yes, they had that, but then they also had, you know, whether the, the luck of their opponent got injured, they avoided getting injured, which is a, a form of luck in it itself, or their shots went in their opponent's shots didn't go in. Uh, just recognizing how, especially among top teams, how narrow those margins are mm-hmm. and how much like these little things that you, that are not, you know, accountable for. Um, Eric is a Sixers fan. So I'm, I'm, as he's talking about these little things, I'm sure he sees a, a baseline jump shot bouncing on the rim four times before it, it, it oh, drops in. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's uh, not nice. That's yeah. not nice. But what, what, <laughs> hey, well, no, they like they. I, if, if I'm looking, thinking of that year's playoffs, I, I think I see just see Fred Van Vliet making like 14 straight threes against yeah. us. Well, that so, I see too. But yeah. I, I think I thought what you were also going to refer to, as you did already mention, the luck or non-luck of injuries. I think you know I'm looking at the Sixers right now. If Embiid is injured for any period of time again, they're going nowhere. And I, I was thinking I was actually actually starting to feel a little bit optimistically. I, I thought you were also going to talk about um, we put way too much certainty in these things. Like all of a sudden the Lakers, oh, yeah. because of the injury to Anthony Davis, are now the fourth most favored team. Now, you put zero probability on someone that missed 40 games during the regular season that he wouldn't also miss some in the playoffs. Like you could make an argument the Lakers never should have been that favored. Yes. Um, that. That's an, that's an interesting one, which is sort of well outside of my normal purview is like evaluating, you know, the probability of, you know, I guess random injury um, and whether for certain players, there's a higher chance of that than others. You're clearly not enough of a gambler. If you're not enough of a gambler, Seth, that has to be fundamental to the bottom up models that, 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 that must dominate basketball gambling these days. It must be a big part of it. I, I, you know, I, I, I did my time at the, at, at the, at the tables. So I I'm, I'm done with that now. <laughs> Listen, Seth, another way to get at some of the analytics. I mean, I, I, one of my basketball fantasies is basically this, to go to a game with you or somebody like you and just kind of listen to you think, think out loud. So if I were to, if I were to give you, if we were to drop in at a halftime of a game and you had to let's make you a gambler, you had to pick who was going to win. Um, and you weren't going to get the identities of the teams. You were going to do it with stats. Um, what what would what would be at the top of your list for what you would want to know happened in the first half? You can't ask with the score. Just you're going to work with stats without identities. What stats are you going to use to make your call of what's going to happen in the second half? So I'll I'll give my my favorite version of this is one that was first kind of demonstrated by uh, Ken Pomeroy, who's who's kind of the one of the sure. leading college basketball is if two teams are tied at halftime and you don't know anything about either team and you had to bet on the second half, you bet on the one that shot worse from three in the first half. That's good. Yeah. 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 And I think now that's the, the rationale is if they, if they're tied with having had such bad luck, then they're probably the better team. So that's a very clever answer. It's a regression to the mean kind of answer. 
Um, I want to do something. I'm, I'm trying to be more, I'm, I'm trying to find out what advanced statistics I should be paying more attention to. So whatever version of the question would lead to your revealing that, like what's top of list for what you think the most important stats are or analytics or what, whatever word you want to use. What, what do I need to pay attention to to better understand the fundamentals of basketball these days? Numbers that might not have been available 20 years ago. Hmm. That's it. That's such a big question because it, 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 what, like, what do you want to know? I think that's the, I'm always, almost always wanting to know what, what reveals the true underlying quality in some predictive sense. Oh, so just the easy (laughs) questions. Just just that, Seth. (laughs) No, I, cause I, cause I, cause, cause no, it's, it's predictiveness is, is always a really interesting topic in basketball you know, whether it's, it's bottom up or, 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 or top down metrics, uh, because we know that context is so important. Um, so, you know, a player will perform very different in one role and in one team than he will in another. Mm-hmm. So then how do you interpret, okay, this player is a, you know, call him a plus three points per hundred player in his specific mm-hmm. context. Now put him in something, a completely different role. How is he going to do? You know, we're just now sort of developing the tools to start to, to, to address that question in a sort of a systematic way. Well, that's neat alone. I love that as an answer, because what you're saying is, look, it's, it's context specific. And we need to know something about interactions and teammates. And, and that's terrific. All right. That's where we are. That's the frontier. That's really exciting to me. And I can believe that mostly it's a question mark right now. But to even recognize the question mark is an advance. No, and I think we've, you know, you, you get most of the way, you know, you get to a certain 80-20 answer of, of kind of player production value. You get there pretty easily and we've made some advances, but that's sort of chipping away. The next step is definitely like, okay, why? Why does, why does this player in this context perform well? And what does that say about how he would do? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, if you, from a, like a front office perspective, you're looking to acquire a player who you think is undervalued because of these metrics, Mm-hmm. Okay, can what is that? What is what he did there portable to us? Right. Or if he performed poorly there, does what he do there portable to us? And so, in in that way, he's also undervalued. So those are mm-hmm. those are the really interesting frontiers, and that that stuff is just devilishly hard. Mm-hmm. It is devilishly hard. It requires a ton of data, unfortunately, to really get at. But they seem important questions. And again, like you said, these this is the the second the last twenty percent. This isn't the first twenty percent. This is the last twenty percent. But um, they can be, it can make a difference, especially it can make a difference between teams that are relatively equally um, sided, you know? And so and th- those are often the situations that we're most interested in. All right, listen, man, we've, we've taken more of your time than we thought we would. We could talk with you for a very long time. We appreciate your being with us, Seth, as always. We will look forward to talking with you again down the road. Good luck getting that book out. It's going to be an so exciting much. few months for you. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to, the uncomfortable avenue of self-promotion. <laughs> oh gosh, don't look forward to that. Too uncomfortable, but good luck with it for sure. We've, we'll talk with you more about it when it comes out in November. Thank you so much. Great, Seth, you're at Seth Partnow, right? At Seth Partnow. On Twitter, at Seth Partnow. He goes by the handle Anchorage Man up there. You can also see him on The Athletic writing about basketball and basketball analytics. Enjoy the playoff, Seth, and good luck with the book. The book is called The Mid-Range Theory. Is that right? The Mid-Range Theory coming out in November. Wonderful. All right, guys, that has been another Wharton Moneyball two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. For the whole crew, 
Eric Bradlow, who's still here with me, Adi Weiner, who had to step away. Shane Jensen was not able to be here for this segment, but was for some of the rest of the show for the whole team. Maddie Datz, the boss man, Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Couldn't do it without you two guys. Very much appreciate it. And to all of our listeners, thanks for being here, guys. Come back and join us next week between now and then. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.